This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Tuesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. And by the way, we really appreciate you tuning in. It's a program dedicated to taking phone calls and answering Bible questions, life questions, uh, questions about our faith, anything and everything that's on your heart. We'll do the best that we can to answer. You need only to call us. You can do that by dialing 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send them to us that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. It requires just one touch. Call now, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one final time, is 340-9585. Because it's Tuesday and a cold Tuesday, I might add. We just before I get into the question, we uh, I, I you know I get the mail and took the mail down to Malta Medical every day, and then come back up here and with the mail that we have here. Well, one of our our graduating seniors last year is now in a performing arts college in Iowa, and she called her mom. I was talking to her mom. Uh, the temperature in Iowa, the, the, the wind chill factor there is 22 below zero. I would have told her to come back to Texas, but it's cold out there. So uh, her name is Sarah. You can keep Sarah in your prayers. Well, let's get right to questions. My first one comes from Manuel. Manuel, not Manuel. Manuel is a different spelling. Um, Pastor Ron, I know God didn't use evolution and creation, but couldn't he have made the earth with the appearance of age? Um, of course he could have. Uh, we, we know that uh, when Adam was one day old, he appeared to be a grown adult. So Adam was created with the appearance of age, even though, in fact, he was really only one year old. People say, well, how old was Adam when he was created? Well, he was brand new. It was one day. Um, well, the thing, same thing could be true. Um, with the earth uh, as well. Uh, however, God's not doing stuff like that to trick us. You know, here, here's something that we've got to worry about, Manuel. We get so brainwashed, so bombarded with the, the, the earth, the galaxy, the universe is billions and billions of years old, or, or um, um, you know, we've been around for millions of years. Um, that it's it's just sort of stamped in our brains. 
instead of understanding that day one was when God said, let there be light, and there was light. Day six, God created mankind. And in, in between all of that, this process of creation, it took six full days, 24-hour days. And we don't have to apologize for that. We can believe in the beginning God, or we can believe there was a big bang, or there was a, a lower life form that we evolved from, or we can just say God made it. So Emmanuel, he could have for sure made the earth with the appearance of age, uh, but but I'm betting that our testing um, and aging processes aren't nearly as uh, effective and, and correct as we think they are. Uh, don't be embarrassed to tell people that you believe in a young earth, um, and Jesus did it all. Let's go to a phone call. We've got... Um, let me see here. Robert from San Antonio on line one. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron Arbaugh. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Listen, I got I got a question here. Uh, well, obviously, that's why I called it. Uh, the Nephilim, are there any present-day giants from that, uh, what took place uh, in the pre-flood days and after the pre-flood days? Are there any forms and signs of any of that still going on, that type of activity? Uh, outside of the NBA and some tribes in Africa that routinely have people that approach seven feet tall. No, and I, I'm not being flippant with you, Robert, at all. Right, uh, it's just, right. It's just the answer is no. You know, when, when, when people groups scatter and the DNA mm-hmm. pool is limited, uh, obviously right. you're going to get a whole bunch of people that look like one another, and that's the reason for for the the, uh, the the appearance of very, very large people. Uh, other times, the appearance of, of super large people is just an anomaly, uh, sort of a freak thing and happens. Uh, but, but there's nothing like the Nephilim going on now. Now, we also know, though, that, for example, we can go back to the Philistines, Goliath and his brothers. Um, right. um, th- th- there were they were giants then. We we would consider them giants now. Goliath uh, was supposedly about nine feet six inches tall. Right. Um, and and again, there are still places where people are very small or very large, but uh, nothing like the Nephilim. That race was completely wiped out uh, in the flood. Uh, that I believe was the purpose of the flood. We're on, Pastor Ron. One more question, because mm-hmm. I, you know, I've been, I hear various programs uh, in my radio Christian program, and and they've been talking about the Book of Enoch. And have you ever heard of the Book of Enoch? And I just read uh, the hardcover uh, uh, on a bookstore, and it talked about demonology. And I just thought I'd better not even go there. Uh, I thought that was a leading the Holy Spirit there. Uh, what's your thought on that? And I'll hang up and let you go on that. But should I? I don't think I should be dabbling in that when it comes to that. Is, it, would you agree with me on that as well? Yeah, Robert. I would. I would say uh, I've only glanced through the Book of Enoch, so I haven't actually read it myself. Um, but but I don't think it's it's harmful if you have discernment and if you're grounded in the Word of God. It's not something that's going to lead you astray in terms of of um, uh, false doctrine or anything like that, if you understand what it is. And I think the problem is when we read something like that, we have a tendency to give it way more credibility than than it, it, than it ought to have, and it, it becomes influencing. There are other um, um, extra-canonical books, it's hard for me to say, 
um, and uh, the, the gospel stories according to the others out there. There's there's a great historical value. Uh, a lot of them are interesting in 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 large places uh, of the book. However, um, I don't recommend anybody Robert uh, spends any time in those books until they're really and truly grounded in the Word of God. Uh, it's just our natural human um, um, curiosity. Uh, when something piques our interest, we're going to get it, and then we're just naturally going to give it the same kind of weight that we give our Bible, and that's the one thing that we should never do. And by the way, the Internet proves that to be true. I've got people all the time uh, who are emailing me or calling me uh, and wanting to argue with something I've said based on something they read on the Internet, like everything on the Internet is true. Uh, the books, though they have historical value, they are simply books written by men, not books written by God. And that's the, the the primary danger that we end up giving them more credibility than they deserve. Thank you, Robert. Two good questions. Appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Jeff. He says, what would you say is the primary purpose of the church? Jeff, um, we don't have to guess uh, or, or an opinion. The, the primary purpose of the church is uh, to fulfill the Great Commission. The Great Commission, by the way, is not converting people. Uh, that will happen. But the, the primary mission of the church is to make disciples. Jesus said, uh, make disciples of people. A disciple is a student, a follower of Jesus. And so the, the church is to point to Jesus um, the, the church is to present Jesus uh, as the Bible presents him. Uh, and then when people get saved, then we teach them. And, and Jeff, that's the one thing I think that's missing uh, in the 21st century here in the United States and the church. There's not enough teaching going on. Uh, we like to go hear cute stories. Uh, we like to fill our seats. We, we've got decreased attention spans. Um, truth of the matter is, teaching the Bible is what produces the fruit in our lives. Uh, understanding what it says, what it means, and then how we can use those two things, what it says and what it means, uh, to change our lives so that we can become more like Jesus. So the primary purpose of the church is to make disciples. I'll add one other thing. That's to equip the saints so that they can do the work of ministry that they're called to do. One of the great things, Jeff, about um, what I get to do every every week here at Calvary Chapel, whether it's Sunday or Wednesday or Friday or even in our smaller Bible studies, uh, there's a whole bunch of people that come and they sit down, and I'm aware that there's a bunch of people with wonderful gifts, and God wants to use those gifts. So my responsibility in teaching the word is to equip them to use those gifts for the glory of God. And when, when a pastor does that faithfully, then you're going to find that there's people in your church body that can do everything. One of the complaints that I hear from other pastors from time to time, Jeff, is that we, we just don't have enough people who will serve. Well, if you teach the Bible and you equip them to use those gifts, first identify the gifts and then use those gifts, you're going to have tons and tons of people. I was bragging, I hope in a godly way, just uh, this past week, uh, somebody asked me, said, you know, uh, Pastor Ron, our, our, our primary worship 
uh, pastor and his wife were gone on a on the twentieth anniversary uh, trip, and uh, a, a man sitting in church said, "Pastor Ron, where did you get all these people with all these gifts? Because we have people that we can just sort of recycle in and and take over." And uh, my my response was the same as the one I'm going to give you now. I told him. Um, I didn't get all these gifts. I just teach the Bible, and God uses people with those gifts to use those gifts for His glory. So that's what equipping the saints is. I've got people here who are encouragers. I've got people here who are teachers. Last night, uh, Paula came home absolutely raving about the women's Bible study that Crystal Snellenberg did here at the church. Uh, Crystal and her husband Creighton have been around here for a very, very long time. Um, until you give them the opportunity to use those gifts, you're not aware of the depth. But Paula came home just thinking, I want to be her when I grow up. Um, that's just the gift. We have people that can fix things. we got people that can do um, um, tech stuff and sound and audio and, and video uh, gifting. And we've got others who have just a gift of discernment and, and God sort of can lead and guide them and direct them to the people who are hurting. That's the way the body has to work. And Jeff, there's no other purpose. The purpose of the church isn't to grow. The purpose of the church isn't to win converts, although that will happen. That's a benefit of teaching the Bible. But the purpose of the church is to make disciples and equip the saints for the work of ministry. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Remember, the program's a lot more interesting when you're involved. Here's a question from Maria. Um, haven't had this question in a long time, Maria. Maria says, did Jesus say Peter was the rock of the church and that's why he was the first pope? Maria, Jesus didn't say Peter was the rock of the church. Jesus was using a play on words. And when he said, you are Peter, the Greek word he used there was a word that means tiny pebble. And then he says, this rock, and it's a big massive stone in Greek, uh, is his statement of faith. Who do people say that I am? Then Jesus said, who do you say I am? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, and Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Peter. Because man's not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And on this rock, this statement, this massive rock, the statement of faith in who Jesus is, that's the rock upon which the church was being built. So um, Peter was a pebble. His statement of faith, who Christ is, was this massive rock that the church is built upon. And let me say this once and for all, Maria. Peter was not the first pope. The Catholic Church cannot possibly trace uh, papal authority back to Peter. It's simply not true. The Catholic Church in Rome, as we understand it today, didn't begin until the 4th century. 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine declared for his own selfish reasons uh, that Christianity was the official religion of the world. Remember that he was a ruler of the world. Um, that's where what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church began. Um, Peter was dead. <laughs> you can't be the first pope if you're dead. So to trace things back is just, 
uh, some dishonest um, spiritual gymnastics that they're doing uh, to to justify their their papacy. Uh, you know the Mormons uh, sometimes say they're the only true church because they're the only church where the foundations, the apostles, and they still have an active apostle. Um, but but that's to misunderstand the ministry, the calling of the apostles, and the present day application of of those apostles and and the, the the progress of the church. Well, the Roman Catholic Church does exactly the same thing. The only difference is the Mormon Church is a cult. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is a religion. Uh, it's rife with false teaching. Uh, never forget, however, there are some real born-again Christians in the Catholic Church. The problem, as always, Maria, is that they don't teach it. You need to be born again. Uh, thus, they're denying by their practice the very words of Jesus himself. Here's an interesting question from Donald. He says, Calvinism says you have to first be saved before believing in Jesus. I don't understand. Donald, the reason you don't understand is because it doesn't make any sense. Now, I want to be clear about this. Before anybody can get saved, there is a work that God does in our hearts. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us. The technical term and the theological term is prevenient grace. It's that grace that comes and convicts you of sin, convicts you of righteousness, and convicts you of, ju- uh, of judgment. Um, but you can't be saved until you meet Jesus. So what the Holy Spirit does is prepare you to be saved. Now, a Calvinist would say, no, dead people can't do anything. They can't make a right choice for God. Uh, we're completely and, and, and utterly wicked. So really we have to get saved in order to make a profession of faith. And that just is a a silly doctrinal concept. The Spirit prepares you. Somebody tells you. How will they know if they don't hear and how will they hear if somebody doesn't preach? And then somebody tells you about Jesus and at that glorious instant, all of that comes together and results in the born-again experience. So, just ignore it, Donald. That's not what the Bible says. And um, sorry you're exposed to it. Anonymous call, or anonymous question here. Is sexual intimacy before being married a sin? Uh, Things are so different today than in earlier times, I don't see why it would be. Anonymous, the, the one thing that we have to understand is God never changes. Something he said was sin 2,000 years ago is still sin today. Um, God never changes. So when you understand that, the Spirit of God grips your heart, you know it's wrong, and it doesn't matter what the rest of the world says, thinks, or does. See, we're Christians, so it's a sin because God says it is. God didn't wake up this morning and say, wow, am I behind the times? I don't want to be old-fashioned. God wants us to withhold sexual intimacy until we're married. And he does it because he knows that's best for us. He knows that's the most glorious use 
of the gift of sex that he's given us. Make no mistake, sex is a wonderful thing. But God who created us, who bought us out of our sin, who gave us the gift of sexuality, is the only one who gets to make the rules about it. And uh, Anonymous, one of the traps that we can fall into is being convinced by an ever-changing world that old truths are no longer true. And truth is truth. It'll always be true if it ever was true. So yes, it is a sin. What I would ask you to do is just dig into your Bible Let Jesus convince you of these things. And don't let anyone or any group or any current thought convince you that your Bible is not God's inerrant, infallible love letter written to you. So yes, sexual intimacy is, before marriage, is a sin. Here is another anonymous question. I always tell when the questions are anonymous what they're going to deal with. Um, I know we're supposed to obey our pastors, but what if you think what they're telling you is not right? Uh, Anonymous, you're not supposed to obey your pastors. You're to honor them. Um, You're to respect them. Um, And if you have a pastor who's telling you to do something that isn't right, something that violates your conscience, um, there's no commandment in the scriptures to obey them. Uh, All of our obedience to to people in this world, whether it's a wife to a husband or children to parents or or congregants to pastors, um, all of our obedience is predicated on as unto the Lord. Uh, I can't tell the people here at Calvary Chapel what to do. Uh, I, I hope I've taught them so well, Anonymous, that if I started telling them or demanding that they do something that was uh, unbiblical, that they would all say, uh-oh, you always told us to leave. If you get goofy, well, you're getting goofy. So we're not supposed to obey them except as it relates to our teaching, our representing, our right representing Jesus. Um, pastors are normal people. Uh, we have a great calling. God gives us gifts. Um, but but make no mistake, what we do is a privilege and an honor. And the most important thing, Anonymous, for people like me to do is rightly represent Jesus. You know, I've I've actually thought about this. You know, I went through some heart problems for the last couple of years, and and it's all fine now, but I just thought, you know, if I've got to tell my church that I can't do this anymore, I want to be able to stand up before him when I say goodbye to him and hand the church over to Pastor Ken. I want to be able to say, um, if I have sinned against any of you, um, please tell me so that I can make it right, so that I can apologize. If I've abused anybody, if I've been demanding or harsh or unreasonable, I don't want to do any of those things. So honor your pastors, respect your pastors. But if your pastor is doing something or telling you to do something that that you know you can't do or you shouldn't do biblically, then you cannot obey that. 
And it might be time to start looking for a church with a pastor who's really following the Lord. You know, being in a position of leadership in, in, at any level, and in, in this case we're talking spiritual leadership, um, can be a very seductive things and thing. And there, there are a lot of pastors who have taken advantage of their position as a pastor. Uh, it's one of the things that I constantly fear in my own walk with the Lord. I do not want to embarrass Jesus. I do not want to embarrass Paula. I do not want to embarrass Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. And that means I've got to stay really, really close to Jesus. And then when I tell the people in the church, this is what the Bible says, this is what you ought to be doing. Um, then in fact, um, they can do those things and will. But make no mistake, I, I don't have any authority or any control in anybody's life but mine, and to a lesser degree, Paula's, but even still, uh, Paula would be the first one, anonymous, she'd be the first one who, if I told her to do something ungodly, would say, nope, not going to do it. And she would do it because she loves me, but more importantly, because she loves Jesus. So, honor, respect, follow, but leave your obedience to Jesus. I want to be able to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's not making people obey. That's setting an example for them to follow. Well, you can hear the music. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'd love your calls. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585. We've still got time for calls and questions. Here is a question from, oh, I lost it here. I'll find it. There it is, from Nacho, from our mobile app. This is Hello, Pastor Ron. Yes, another Proverbs question. I always tell when Nacho is doing his morning devotions in a book, the questions come. He says, what does Proverbs 21.14 really mean? Let me read it, and then we'll talk about it. Remember, these are general principles. Verse 14 says, a gift given in secret soothes anger, and a bribe concealed in the cloak pacifies great wrath. Like many of the Proverbs, it's a general principle. Um, it is um, uh, a, a practice that's been going on in the ancient world, even unto today in the Middle East. Um, and what it's saying is, look, if, if somebody is angry with you, then by giving them uh, a gift, uh, being generous with even kind words or uh, in our culture, we might say with flowers or cards at just the right time, uh, it is something that will 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 demonstrate our heart to make things right. It, it's it's a gesture to to get right and to make things right because you don't want anybody to be angry. You don't want anybody to have anything against you. You know, Jesus said, 
Uh, if you bring your gift to the altar and you find that somebody has something against you, leave your gift there and go make things right. And, and I think that's what we're, we're really saying. The part about a bribe concealed in the cloak uh, pacifies great wrath. Um, you know, in the ancient world, bribing kings, now it's not a, a sinister thing like it is here, but there were always people watching. And so the idea is to do these things in secret. Um, you don't do these things out in the open for others to see. You do these things in secret, and then people will be able to trust your heart. Remember, just general principles. Uh, a bribe back then meant something completely different than now. Um, so he's not um, encouraging us to be dishonest. Um, what he's saying is simply um, be generous with the gift. So I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I want to put a little shout out for Monday night. It was absolutely fantastic. And any ladies that had missed it uh, by not seeing it online or, or being there, it's really worth your time to uh, to listen to it and, and to watch it if it's on the computer yet. Now, I've got yeah, one it, of my... It, 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 is, it is online at calvarysa.com. Uh, okay, so uh, thank you for, for, for giving that encouragement. Yeah, it, it was great. Now, my, I have another one of my I wonder what's going on questions, and it's in First uh, Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. I'll read it in the NIV. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Now, that's not where my question is. Uh, here it is. He was put to death in the body and made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who, and then in chapter, in verse 20, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, it goes on to talk about baptism, but that doesn't have anything to do with what I'm wondering about. I'm wondering, did those spirits that he preached to in prison, I am assuming that those are people who died before the flood, did they, were they offered salvation, and, and did they maybe get saved? And I'll uh, leave you with that and then listen online. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. Yeah, let me tell you, first of all, it's not a second chance. Um, this is a victory declaration. So when... Um, Jesus, between the, the time of his death and resurrection, we know that he went into the center part of the earth, uh, the place we call the abyss. And Peter says that he preached um, a victory message. Um, and in doing this, um, w- w- he wasn't giving them a, another chance to get saved. Um, what he was doing is simply letting them know uh, that, that his judgment is just, that they all had an opportunity um, to um, hear um, Noah's righteous Noah's preaching, um, but unfortunately, uh, they're guilty of rejecting the word of God. Um, Cindy, this is arguably the most difficult passage in the New Testament. Uh, Let me read something that Martin Luther said about this passage Uh, from this place in in 1 Peter 3 through chapter 4, verse 6. Martin Luther said, it's so short, more obscure than any other. And then Martin Luther said, frankly, I don't know what the apostle meant. Um, I don't think it's that difficult. 
but it was important um, to understand it's not a second chance. Um, Jesus went in a post-resurrection state into what we call Hades and preached a message. Um, the Greek word for spirits uh, is almost always used to describe non-humans. Um, or if a human connection is suggested by the context, it's always a human who had died in the body but whose spirit remains alive. And that's, of course, the, 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 the case for all of us. Uh, so this is, again, not a second chance at salvation. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed once for man to die, then to face judgment. And the Bible cannot ever contradict itself. So he wasn't given these spirits of either the fallen angels. And that's sort of where I lean here, that these are the fallen angels uh, who are being held. Um, uh, and if it is humans, he wasn't giving them a second chance at salvation. Now, we need to remember that Noah's message for 120 years was that judgment was coming. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 uh, declares that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And his message was that people needed to get right with God before the flood of judgment come. You know, Cindy, one of the things I always think about uh, is all of the, the, the uh, rejection, the mocking, um, e- even the, the outright opposition that Noah and his family would have received. God is so patient that for 120 years, as Noah built and Noah preached, people had an opportunity. Seven days before the flood, God instructed for Noah and his family to go inside the ark, and God himself sealed them in. That's an important picture for the the Great Tribulation, because he's also going to seal Israel in. He's going to take those who who are aware of, of who he is, they become aware through the preaching of the two witnesses and the 144,000 witnesses. are going to take him to the rock city of Petra in Jordan, what we call modern-day Jordan. And he's going to protect them for the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation from the wrath of the Antichrist. Well, in the same way, he sent Noah and his family into the ark. He sealed it and protected them. Even inside the ark, they would have been able to hear the people mocking them and making fun of them. People still do the same thing today. So what Jesus did, he went down in the body, glorified, resurrected body, but he went down in the body and he explained to them that the victory that he's announcing could have been their victory if they'd only chose. So, almost certainly these were the spirits of those who died in the flood and the demonic spirits who infiltrated the world at the time. Um, And Jesus was simply going to preach the cross to them. This was the answer all along. This is what Noah meant. And now every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this was a trip where they would confess that very truth. So, Cindy, thanks. Great question. I appreciate it. Uh, Lauren asked, Pastor Ron, what is the primary role of a pastor's wife? Well, Lauren, I don't know if you're called to be a pastor's wife or not, but the primary role of a pastor's wife is to be the pastor's wife. Um, I know you mean in the church, but everybody's different. 
Uh, I have uh, six or seven, six staff pastors, uh, seven including me, um, and, and, and their wives, um, they're the ones that they weren't called by the Lord, their husband was. Um, what we do is let the Lord reveal the role that they're to serve in the church. Uh, I find it really interesting here. I'm, I'm surrounded by younger people. And uh, a lot of our pastor's wives uh, have a bunch of children at home. Um, their role is different than Paula's role. Uh, some of the other pastor's wives, their children are now grown and in college or married or, or something. So, so they're, you know, entering a phase of life where they're freed up and able to be in, in more places, do more things. Um, uh, so their role changes. The, the only thing uh, that I require of Paula is that she loves the people that I love. Now, Paula uses her gifts, and I want all of the pastor's wives here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio to use the gifts that God has given them. We want them to be uh, in unity with their husbands. We want them to be uh, solid in their marriages. We want them to be good. Um, uh, we want the, the pastors, of course, to be good and godly husbands and, and fathers. Um, we want their wives to feel loved and precious and beautiful, all those things. If the wife feels that, then as she pursues the use of her gifts in the church, God will define her body. I was just trying to think and talk at the same time. Um, one of my pastor, uh, pastors and his wife um, um, uh, just fostered and, and then adopted um, three kids, um, uh, siblings, uh, two girls and a boy. Um, and and their plate's really full now, and yet they still are so committed to serving here. The, the, the husband, the pastor, teaches at the academy. Um, his wife, uh, honestly, she just kind of does everything, and she's so faithful. Um, that's just, just one example. Um, but, but God will lead. The primary role of the pastor's wife is to support her husband, to love her husband, to love Jesus and love God's people. And if, if she does that, then she's going to know exactly what her role is. Now, let me say what the role of a pastor's wife is not. It doesn't mean that she's smarter than other women. It doesn't mean that she's more spiritual. It doesn't mean that she's just automatically thrust into a leadership role. Um, the smart pastor and pastor's wife will wait for God to control. I think... Lauren, of all the things that I've done over the years here at Calvary Chapel, one of the best things uh, was way back at the beginning when I told Paula that your job is to be my wife. Your job's not to teach Bible studies. Your job's not to be the women's ministry leader. Your job is to simply be my wife. And then we'll see what God does. Well, all of those things have happened. Of course, Paul leads our women's ministry, and, and Paula teaches the Bible and actually travels all over uh, doing women's conferences and retreats and things like that. God has really gifted her. But if I would have insisted at the very beginning that she assume all those responsibilities, it would have destroyed her. We actually had another woman who was the primary women's Bible teacher for a few years 
gospel. God was doing his work in Paula. One of the worst things that happens, and we send out uh, uh, pastors to plant churches, and I always tell them, just because she's your wife doesn't mean she's a children's ministry leader. I insist that the pastor's wives are in the sanctuary when their husbands are teaching the Bible. If there's multiple services, Paula goes to every service. Why? Because this is where the opportunities to minister are. So, Lauren, if you'll just view it like that, it's not a first lady, it's not a co-pastor, um, um, whatever gifts God has given you, or if you're talking about another pastor's wife, her job then is to use those gifts for the glory of God and be supportive of her husband. I hope that's not just, I uh, hope it made sense. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Randy wants to know, Pastor Ron, do you recommend Walk in the Word with James McDonald? Also, can I have your opinion of Ravi Zacharias? Um, Randy, I do not recommend James McDonald's uh, ministry. By the way, he's a gifted Bible teacher. Um, but um, um, I won't go into any detail, but James McDonald is going through a whole bunch of, of difficulties in his church. And um, uh, just, just it, it's, it's not a settled um, place where people go in without distraction. Um, again, I, I don't have any specific information. I know James, by the way. I've met James uh, several times. Um, once at a Calvary Chapel pastor's conference. Another time we just ran into him, he was with Greg Laurie. Um, uh, but uh, he's a good Bible teacher, for sure. Um, but there seems to be some question, Randy, as to whether or not he's actually living um, what he teaches. Uh, my opinion of Ravi Zacharias is um, um, I, I thoroughly and highly recommend him and his ministry. Uh, he is an apologist, um, I love the fact that his primary calling seems to be to go into universities and deal with um, um, what the, the students always say are the really difficult questions Christians ever answer. The questions aren't that difficult, uh, but, but Ravi uh, has done it well. Um, uh, his ministry is abundantly fruitful. Uh, he has a whole bunch of people. I think I have another question about some of the people in his ministry uh, that I might be able to get to uh, if I can find it here. Um, but um, um, I have no reservations at all. His doctrine is uh, um, solid. Um, as an evangelist and an apologist, um, he stays away from the the polar extremes of Christianity. You're not going to hear him get up and talk about being a Calvinist or an Arminianist. Um, uh, got a great command of the word and uh, he is a brilliant, brilliant guy so I recommend him highly the other question that I had, Randy was from Andrew I said, do you have any thoughts on Vince Vitale or John Lennox and their ministries um, both of those men are connected with uh, Ravi's ministry the um, uh, uh, they travel all over the world John Lennox is a kick I love him um, he's funny, he's smart, um, uh, he's, he's just, uh, he's worth the price of admission. Uh, Vince Vitale, um, I, I think he's moved to the United States, uh, uh, and is actually sort of Ravi's right-hand man now. They're, they're 
ministry is is based in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Vince was a um, a world class soccer player. Uh, he's also a world class thinker. Uh, he's from Jersey, so sometimes people in Jersey don't sound smart, but believe me, Vince is. Uh, and uh, I have listened to Vince a lot over the years and have not found fault with anything that he does. One of the things that you need to remember, and this is for uh, both Andrew and Randy, when you have a ministry like this, um, you're going to hear a lot of the same things over and over. They travel all over the place, all over the world, really. And uh, when they do, they, they're like Jesus. They repeat a lot of their teachings. So uh, you can actually listen uh, to them uh, and at the same time, you have to listen to everything because a lot of their 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 presentations are uh, the same ones that they've done in other places. But I have no reservations at all about uh, Ravi or any of the guys on his uh, on his ministry team. And I think he has thirty of them or thirty five of them uh, in different parts. And he's got a ministry in Europe uh, that is very fruitful as well. So. Um, yeah, I can wholeheartedly recommend them. Not so much with James McDonald. Brian says, uh, more and more of our youth are thinking are thinking to try out homosexuality. What can be done to help them? Brian, you have to understand the dynamic. Uh, our young people now, um, whether they're in, in elementary school all the way up through college, um, they have been brainwashed that these lifestyles are okay and the 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 christian youth those who are were raised in church um those who know what's right and what's wrong um the truth is the world is going to convince them of the world's position if they're not young people who are really committed to their bibles um the 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 young person that spends more time in social media um than than in the Bible is going to get lost in the thinking of this world. It's just that simple. So the only thing that we can do to help them is to point them to Christ, point them to the Word, and then pray for them. Pray for them. You know, when somebody has been their whole life told that something is okay, and suddenly they hear a church say it's not okay, well, the church either sounds like a bunch of bigots or they've been convinced by the Holy Spirit that the church is simply declaring what the Word of God says. And it is a really, really difficult time for them because the things that our world applauds, um, the things that God says are sin and, and are wicked, um, it, there's just a, a, a sort of a discordance between the two ends. And unless they're really committed to the Bible... Um, they're going to be won over. The same thing, by the way, Brian, is true for adults as well. Uh, adults are going to be won over by this world. We we are bombarded constantly in the media with these kinds of ideas. And when we say as a culture that something is okay, um, abortion is, is uh, an example. Um, 65 million babies have been aborted since 1973 because the government gave its stamp of approval. I'll go one step further. New York City just last week okayed abortions at any point in 
the pregnancy as long as the child's not yet out of the womb. And they're congratulating themselves for it. This is one of those things that that um, if, if judgment falls on New York, that could be the judgment of God. Um, I, I mean, we've, we've, we've no decency any longer. What everybody instinctively knows is wrong is now okay. In 2015, when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, we gave validity to people who want to sin and rebel against God. And as a result, it ex- increases exponentially. All we have to do is say something is fine, start applauding people when they avail themselves of those sins, and everybody's going to try it. Now we've got a lot of confused kids who are thinking maybe they're in the wrong gender, in the wrong body. And the result of that is going to be lives that are absolutely devastated, ruined lives. And all because we called good evil and evil good. By the way, that gives me a chance to sort of hype my Bible study tomorrow night in Isaiah chapter 5. I think it's a, a really important Bible study. Uh, I don't like to set myself up like that, but I just think it, it's it's going to answer a, a lot of of the questions we have about why things are the way they are. And, you know, it's it's not a, a chapter written to, to the United States. It has nothing to do with us as a country. But the application of it for all of us in, in any nation, and that's every nation on earth now that rebels against God, God says judgment's going to come. Because we've dismissed him. And I think tomorrow night's Bible study in Isaiah chapter 5 is going to give people a lot of answers, make sense of the things that we see in this world. So, Brian, pray for our youth. At the same time, hold firm to the Bible and what it says. Here is the last question of the day from Daniel. He says, Pastor Ron, what do you think about Gentiles converting to Messianic Judaism? Uh, I think you meant Messianic Christianity, Daniel, um, uh, but, but Gentiles becoming Jewish in, in focus and in scope. Uh, I'm not a fan. Um, having said that, we've got a, uh, a lady in our church who is one of the sweetest, uh, most loving uh, women in the world. And she introduced herself to me one day as a Messianic Gentile. Um, it doesn't make sense to me, but, but this lady loves Jesus with all of her heart. Um, I think Gentiles, the Bible teaches us that, that when we become Christians, um, we all belong to the same Jesus. We're not under the law. We shouldn't be pursuing that which is legalistic. Instead, using the freedom God has given. Daniel, I'm going to hold this question tomorrow because I've got a lot more to say about it. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.